Hebrews chapter 4. You know, with the advent of the internet, we're instantly made aware of any celebrity's death. Have you noticed that? It comes through on your phone, perhaps it, it dings, maybe you get an email, check out this news channel. I know Sean Connery died just a few weeks ago at the age of 90. I remember very distinctly graduating from college and someone saying, did you realize that Sean Connery is 60? And yet, 30 years goes by like that and he passes away. Everyone knows instantly, and now with the advent of social media, the populace gets to weigh in. They get to comment on the loss of that individual. And as is so common and has been done for centuries, a comment or two is made, this time electronically, and that it is always followed by three words. Do you remember? Rest in peace. Maybe it's abbreviated if it's on Twitter. R.I.P. Rest in peace. And, and rarely does it seem to make a difference whether that person is a believer or not. I mean, even atheists are granted this moniker, and oftentimes even by believers. Rest in peace. But what does that even mean? We're so familiar with it that I'm not sure we realize what we're really saying. Rest in peace. So I did a little research. It's actually derived from a Latin phrase, recuscat en pace. But it wasn't until the 1700s that we see it commonly used and engraved upon tombstones. It, it seems to have the connotation that this life, with all of its burdens, labors, hurriedness, and pain, is now over. And that the soul is able to relax, perhaps in some sort of semi-comatose state. That it is free from pain. Rest in peace. We even see it in movies, don't we? When someone calls up the dead. And what's the first thing that person who has passed says? Why have you disturbed me from my slumber, from my rest? But is that what the Bible means by eternal rest? And are those who are without Christ upon death, are they resting in peace? Well, the Bible says no. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of of God abides on him. Unbelievers are not resting in peace. In fact, they are at enmity with God. Romans 5.1 says that only those who have been justified by faith now have peace with God. And that peace comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you want to know what a proper engraving might be, you might go back to the first century. And rather than rest in peace, it was domit en pace. He sleeps in peace. And what that meant was he died, he slept. When he fell asleep, he was united with Christ. So what about believers? Will we rest in peace? Will we relax in some semi-comatose state? Well, Philippians 1.23 tells us that upon death, which has no sting, we will be ushered into the presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus says the same thing about the believing thief on the cross. Today you will be, what? With me in paradise. So what does that rest look like? What does that eternal resting look like? Is it, is it some sort of eternal slumber? Well, clearly no, but what does it look like? It seems, let's be honest, we need a theology of rest. We assume way too much, and so much of it is erroneous. 
We need a theology of rest. We need to understand why in this life it is important to persevere. How to persevere and for what are we persevering? What do we have to look forward to? Let's go to our Lord in prayer and then we'll look at this text together. Our gracious Father, we come to you as a body of believers. Having lifted our voices in song, crying out, Oh, come, let us adore Him. It was the second person of the Trinity who was incarnated in flesh without giving up any of His divinity. Our Lord Jesus Christ became a man and lived the perfect life. And as Israel said, died the death that we deserved. And so it is during this season that we remember this birth and how it is inextricably linked with this great sacrifice. This great sacrifice that takes us from enmity, from being enemies of the Godhead to being friends. That our Lord Jesus Christ has made it possible that we can be not only forgiven, but we can be adopted as sons and daughters. So, Father, as we prepare our hearts to hear the message today, we think, as I mentioned a moment ago, about those who are not with us right now. That friend, that family member, that coworker, that neighbor who either doesn't know Jesus Christ or, or who knows Him but yet is not worshiping with a community of believers. And so, Father, put such a healthy, heavy burden on our heart that this week will not go by without us doggedly pursuing that person and not asking them to just come and enjoy a, a worship service with us, but asking them to come die to self and do life together with a body of believers. Serve with us as ambassadors of Christ. And during these few short remaining years that we have left on this earth, may our lives be spent in kingdom building, in helping people come to know Jesus Christ and grow to be like Him. May we become that which we were created for, worshipers of the one true God, who live our lives making disciple, making disciples. As we learned in Equipping Hour, help us to realize that it is the gospel that reaches anyone whom you have set your affection upon. That no one is too far from your reach. No one is too cold or too far gone that can't have their heart changed by the power of the Word of God through the Spirit of God. May we be faithful to take the word to them. Now, Lord, we ask that you would equip us that in these 14 verses of chapter 4, that you would strengthen our faith, that we would put ourselves in the place of these original hearers, those who are scared, those who are undergoing suffering. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you would give us greater resolve that you would give us a healthy fear of disobedience and a strong desire towards obedience, obedience of your word. Father, I pray that you would help us as elders to do that which we often feel ill-equipped to do, to equip the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ by using your word in relationship, that we may equip this flock to endure tough times, that you would strengthen our faith for the work ahead, that you would multiply our efforts, that you would give us such a love for the lost that we would seize every opportunity in an Ephesians 2.10 fashion to walk in the good works which God has prepared beforehand, and that in doing so, we would find great joy Great joy in living life with great significance. So we pray for the lost, Lord. We pray for the opportunities. We pray that you would strengthen our faith today. We pray that our voices would not only be lifted in song, 
but lifted in response to this word. Change us, Lord. Strengthen us. Cause us to rejoice. And in doing so, may we be satisfied. Satisfied in worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you will remember, this is the second part of this section, which we call a pericope, from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through chapter 4, verse 14, there are several consistent themes that reoccur, and it's all one section. We see that believers in God are to avoid developing an unbelieving or hard heart. Because if they do that, it will result in God's wrath abiding on them and they will be unable to enter God's rest. Now, this scripture is in no way talking about a works-based salvation. Remember, this original audience is a group of Jewish believers, most likely in what we would consider modern-day Italy, possibly in Rome, certainly a smaller church, and they're under a lot of pressure to go back to Judaism. Their friends are suffering. Their family has probably rejected them. Their business has suffered. They even know of those who have endured quite a bit and possibly death, though they themselves have not had death enter their church fellowship yet. And they're thinking about going back. Their affections are growing cold. And what the author of Hebrews continually addresses is genuine faith. And he does so from the position of a coach. In the same way I'm preaching to you today and I look out and I, and I trust and I believe and I take at your word that we're believers here. Because you would be doing something else on a Sunday morning, right? But I would be naive to think every single person here is a believer. And so I want to preach in such a way that I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. I'm treating you like a believer. And yet I'm warning you, saying that genuine faith perseveres. That we are saved by grace through faith. Faith is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no man should boast. But genuine faith doesn't just believe it one time in the past, but it believes. It holds fast to our confession of who Jesus is and what He did. We are trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so as we looked at this text, the, uh, the author gave an Old Testament illustration of how the people of God claimed to believe in God or even brought out of slavery through the Exodus, traveled a spiritual journey, you might say, and got right to the doorstep of the Promised Land. They could see what God had provided for them. They could see that God was real. They saw the pillar of cloud during the day, the fire at night. They had seen the Ten Commandments. They saw God destroy Pharaoh and his army. But yet, if you look at verse 1, they were not united in faith. They had an intellectual assent. How do we know this? Because the only thing separating them from the promised land was a bit of suffering. And they didn't want it. And so they chose to turn back. So we see this Old Testament illustration, and it's meant to parallel what these first century professing believers are going through right now. Hey, you claim to be a believer. You've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You've been baptized. You're part of a fellowship. You're worshiping Him every week. And yet, I hear that some of you are ready to punt. Let me warn you, he says. Genuine faith perseveres. Those who turn back show that their faith was merely in their head. So last week, we saw this 
Old Testament illustration. It was like a treasure map. My mic okay? Am I cutting in and out? All right. Um, like a treasure map. And we saw the clue of block lettering that took us back. Do you remember what the first, where the first text was? Psalm, Psalm 95. So when you see that block lettering, it's like, it's like a clue. And so we went back and saw this Davidic psalm. And from there, it told the story of an older text, Numbers 14. And this Old Testament illustration had a contemporary exhortation. Well, this week follows up on that, and we get into the practical. We get into the practical. If last week was the why, this week is is the how. How are we to persevere to the end? Now, I want you to notice a particular theme that that the author camps on. We, We addressed it in our opening illustration. Just follow along as I point a few things out here. I want you to notice how many times the word rest is either mentioned or referred to in this passage. Verse 1, Therefore let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering His rest. You might want to circle or underline that. Second part of verse 3, They shall not enter my rest. Second part of verse 4, And God rested. On the seventh day, verse 5, second part, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, meaning rest, who formerly had good news preached to them, failed to enter, meaning rest, because of disobedience. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest. Verse 9, so there remains a Sabbath Rest, verse 10, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works. Verse 11, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Do you think the author's making a point? Very clearly, very clearly, he's building upon this antithetical Old Testament illustration and a contemporary exhortation not to turn back, to hold fast. And this week, he's going to tell us how. And what he's going to put in view more clearly than last week is this concept of rest. Not a semi-comatose slumber, not a rest in peace as we think about it, but a very pregnant term that coincides with the consummation of our salvation with eternal life. If I was to ask you, are you saved? You would say, well, yes, I'm saved. Yes, but is that salvation complete yet? Well, 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 no. I mean, I'm still living in a world and, and evil hasn't been dealt with completely. Satan still prowls around. I still have this fleshly suit of, suit of clothes, but, but it's as good as done. Well, yes, but one day that salvation will be consummated and we will be with him And we will be what? Like Him. And he seems to use this term to describe that, which is a bit of an already but not yet, but this term to describe eternal life as rest. So why is it so important to persevere till the end in order to enter His rest with that Old Testament illustration in mind? Well, there's two clear imperatives here that divide the passage, give us the practical of how to do it. Because I'm a practical practical guy. I need to understand what I'm supposed to do. I mean, like, put it down in writing for me. And it's almost like the author says, okay, I will. So there's two imperatives. Look at verse 1 and verse 11. Therefore, let us fear. Let us fear. Let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest. Now look at verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Our timeless truth is simply this. The church needs to have a healthy fear of the consequences of disobedience so that they will hold fast 
to the Word of God so that they will be diligent. We need to have a healthy fear so that we will hold fast. We need to let us fear so that we will be diligent. Those are our two points. Now, there's a lot of text here. Uh, If you will, use today, use your notes today as a template to marinate in this throughout the week. There's a lot of phrases here. There's a lot of words. There's a a lot of really rich things about this. But, But having this template will help us know where it's going. Let's look at the first one. Healthy fear. We need to be afraid of hearing like the Israelites, but not actually believing His Word. We need to have a healthy fear that we're all within danger, you might say, of quitting. Now, I want to be careful how I say that, because I don't want everyone in here to question their salvation. At the same time, I don't want this pendulum to swing over here and for us to live a life where we have a low view of sin. Does that make sense? It'll become more clear as we go on. In this long passage, we will see a warning, a connection, and an encouragement. Like a good coach, he's going to warn them what not to do. He's going to make a connection with them about what he's talking about, and then he's going to encourage them along the way and give them marching orders. Let's look at the warning. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you, very personal, any one of you may seem to have come short. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, meaning the Israelites, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was united It was not united by faith in those who heard. We say this to our kids, right? Are you listening to me? Huh? Yeah, yeah, Mom, I'm listening to you. No, no, no. (laughs) You're hearing me, but you're not listening to me. Because if you were listening to me, you would understand what I'm saying and you would act on it. There is a vast difference between understanding or or hearing something cognitively and embracing it with your heart. We know this. That's why we use the English word believing. Resting your whole weight upon something. Trusting, putting your whole being in someone else's hands. That's what salvation is. It's a transfer of allegiance. It's not agreeing with a set of facts. And what we saw last week in this illustration from the Old Testament, it's worth revisiting for a moment, is that the Old Testament people of God had experienced all these things. They got to the step of the promised land. They sent in 12 spies. And do you remember the report? What was it? No doubt this land certainly does flow with milk and honey. Nevertheless, the people who live in it are strong. Their cities are fortified, and there are giants in the land. Translation, it's not safe. They were afraid. Though they were daily in the presence of their Creator, they chose to, watch this, fear man. Fortified cities. Warriors. Giants in the land rather than fear God. As my good friend Dr. John Henderson says, you will worship that which you fear and fear that which you worship. We're either going to worship the Creator or the creation, which means we're either going to fear the Creator or the creation. And what they exposed in their very hearts is that they feared man. Let us appoint a man to take us back to Egypt. It's not safe. And so now think about it. This warning that is going out to these first century believers was that they need to be careful 
that should they decide to go back to Judaism, go back to Egypt, go back to their old way of life, that it would show that they had a fear of man rather than a fear of God. It would show that they worshipped what man thought, worshipped what they wanted, rather than worship God. It would, in effect, show that their faith was not genuine. But I need to understand how this affects me today. Because I'm not fearful of going into some promised land. I'm not dealing with uh, issues of fortified cities, warriors, or giants in the land. I'm not thinking about punning the faith. Are you? Say no. Right? And so we, 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 we hear this message and we're like, hey, pastor, that was, that was a good sermon. I really appreciate that. That was inspiring. It doesn't really apply to me. I mean, no one actually says that to me. But, you know, you can think that. How does this apply to me? I'm not going back to Judaism. I'm not fearful of man in this way. But I think there is a connection. I think there is a connection because as we keep talking about suffering is coming and our faith will be tested. And the way that suffering will test our faith will be a safety issue. A security issue. We, like the Israelites, will be worried for our wife and children. We'll be worried about how we're going to provide. We haven't even suffered yet, and perhaps you have been guilty of one of these statements. I just love Jesus because, well, no matter what I do, He'll always be there for me. Low view of disobedience. Low view of sin. I know what the Bible says regarding divorce, but I can't live with that man anymore. I'm just going to do it and, well, God will forgive me. Or perhaps what I think may be coming is, I know I signed that statement saying I believed in those things that the Bible says are wrong. But come on, I had to do it in order to keep my job. God understands. You see where this is starting to hit closer to home? And the author of the Hebrews says, genuine faith perseveres to enter the promised land, to enter his rest. It doesn't make excuses. It doesn't say that disobedience is not that big of a deal. It doesn't say, well, God will just turn a blind eye or a deaf ear. I'll promise you these first century Jewish believers didn't think that them punting Jesus as their Messiah and going back to Judaism would cost them eternal rest. Not in a million years they didn't think that. God will be fine with that. He'll overlook it. But the author is clear. Two million people spent 40 years in the wilderness, and all of those over 20 died, and their bodies littered the desert because they rejected God's Word. They rejected His promises. Their lack of faith wasn't chalked up to a weak faith. The Bible calls it rebellion. And so this author is being very loving and warning these first century believers and warning us, don't drift away. Because genuine faith will persevere and enter his rest. And those that turn back will not. Not exactly the way to grow a big church, huh? Where everyone wants to just hold fast to a particular profession. Well, he makes a connection, verses 3 through 5, that's very interesting, and it's hard for us to see where he's going with this, but, but hang with me and I'll try to explain. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. 
And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Let me explain to you what he's doing here. These are Jews. If you, if you uh, grew up in the synagogue, the call to worship, as I mentioned last week, every Friday night, the beginning of the Sabbath, was to read Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. Okay? You know the very next part of the call to worship? was Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, right here. That God created, and then He rested. What does this explanation of rest have to do with helping us persevere in order to arrive there? What does it have to do? Well, it's really interesting here. God created the world in six days, and then he rested on the seventh. Did he rest for just a day? You see, his rest is not just the cessation of work, but his rest is a continual state. And it's not a semi-comatose state. The word here is sabbatismos, and it's the only time it's used in Scripture. And it seems to come from another word. It's like saying he's Sabbathing. It's a verbal noun. He's Sabbathing. He worked six days, and now he is Sabbathing. And it seems to come from this word that means to celebrate the Sabbath with praise. What did the Jews do at the Sabbath every week? Did they just lay around? No, they worshipped. They worshipped. They had to work six days, and then they went to the synagogue. They went to temple, and they celebrated. They were in communion with God. They were enjoying His world. It was great to be in His presence. It was a picture of what is to come in our eternal rest. To Sabbath with God is, is to enter the joy of His thanksgiving, to be with Him, to enjoy Himself, to enter into His rest. William Lane puts it this way, verses 9 and 10 anticipate the festival of God's priestly people of God in the heavenly sanctuary, celebrating in the presence of God the eternal Sabbath with unceasing praise and adoration. No one's sleeping. No one's in a comatose state. This is a time where it is a cessation from a fallen world and entering into the perfect. Paul gives us this feel in 1 Thessalonians 5, and he does it in contrast to that concept of peace and wrath. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. The picture of eternal rest is not sleeping or floating around on clouds with harps. It is resurrected bodies like Jesus Christ with Him on a new heavens and a new earth for all eternity, worshiping Him, enjoying Him and enjoying His presence. And the author says, don't miss out on this! Come on, let me give you a little perspective. That this suffering is, is it's, it's, it's hardly a half a step. Life is short and eternity lasts a long time. The conquest was very short. And the promised land was a long time. And that was just a picture. This is why Paul can exclaim, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I wrote my notes here. Is this worth quitting over? Or is this momentary light affliction? 2 Timothy 2.8, Paul again Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. 
but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Paul even saw his suffering as beneficial to those who were headed in the same direction, who had placed their faith and trust in Christ. But as Paul says, the crown awaits only for those who finish the race. And so we see this connection that he makes by explaining rest, by giving them a picture, and by inextricably linking it with the presence of God. Now, this is a heavy warning, no doubt. But then in verses 6 through 10, he encourages them. And he encourages them with the Davidic psalm. 400 years after the Exodus is when David was born. If, if the Exodus was probably 446 BC, the conquest was 14, I mean, 1446 BC, the conquest was 1406 BC, David was right at 1000 BC. Okay, so 400 years. And even David writes, he again, verse 7, fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David after so long a time, as he has said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is what the author is saying. Hey, rest. Rest is not some address in Palestine between the Med and the Jordan River. It's not the promised land. No, eternal rest is what awaits those who are truly people of God. Today, he says, as then, as back before then in the Exodus, today is the day to believe. It's like the preacher is saying, let today be the day of your salvation. Except he's preaching to believers and he's saying, let today be the day that you plant your flag to continue to be faithful. You see? Don't quit like your ancestors did. Hang in there by the power of Christ. Stay the course so that you will arrive at the eternal rest. And so all that first part was just simply have a healthy fear. Look, can we be honest that in modern-day evangelicalism, because we believe so much that we're saved by grace through faith and not of works, that we've lost the healthy fear of what it means to not punt the faith, to not drift away? Yeah. Because we've collapsed things down. The fact is that we are saved by grace through faith, and nothing will ever cause us to be snatched out of the palm of his hand. The other side of that coin is that for those who truly believe, and let's be honest, there's a lot of fakers out there. And maybe you are one of those that for years you faked Christianity because you thought in Dallas-Fort Worth everyone was a Christian. He says, come on. Each one of us will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and will give an account whether they really repented and believed or whether they just gave it lip service and faked it. And he says, you've seen the picture of fakery. Don't do it. This, this pastor, I'm going to call him that, this pastor loves this congregation. He loves them enough to tell them the truth. And he loves them enough to press them and to make them uncomfortable and to say, hey, deal with the estate of your soul. Like, like Paul said, to, to examine yourself, to make sure you're in the faith. Like, like Peter said, to say, to make sure of your calling. He said, Christian, have a healthy fear. Secondly, be diligent to trust and obey his word. I wrote down, hold fast. Hold fast. Verse 11, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Literally, to, um, the Greek word is to, uh, to run hard, to work diligently. We think of running the race with endurance, right? But this is where I need to get into that, the practical part. And this is where I think 
we're allowed to take that illustration that we've heard of, of disobedience, understand it a little more clearly, and then say, well, what would obedience have looked like? What were they not believing? Think about that for a second. What were the Israelites not believing? We know they were fearful. But what part of God's word were they not believing? Well, specifically, they were not believing Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic promise. Where God brought Abram out of Ur the Chaldees to a land that was not his. And while he and his wife were old as dirt, promised them land, seed, and blessing. And of course, we saw that he gave them a seed in Isaac, which was a prototype of the ultimate seed who was to come, Jesus Christ. But Abraham died without seeing the promise. Joseph died without seeing the promise. But here, they're on the doorstep of the promise of land, right? And yet they're fearful. So what they were not believing was his word. They weren't believing that God would do what he said he was going to do. So I want you to put yourself back in that congregation where you are fearful. You know what the word says, but you also know what stands before you. Fortified cities, warriors, giants. You've never fought a battle. You've never handled a sword. What would it look like for you to hold fast to that word? To be diligent to press on through the suffering in order to enter his rest? What would it look like for you to actually trust and obey? Before I answer that, let's see what someone else did. As we've spent a lot of time in Psalms here, let's ask ourselves: was there an Israelite who did it right? Was there an Israelite who faced suffering, who knew of God's promise, and yet was diligent to press on? Well, the answer is yes, and we happen to have studied it here in Psalms, King David. You see, before he was king, he was on the run, right? For years. In fact, in 1 Samuel 30, we, we pick up, and he's living in Philistine territory. He's living outside his land. It's a town called Ziklag, and he's been out fighting, and he comes back, and the Amalekites, dirty, rotten scoundrels, have raided his city, burned it to the ground, taken everything he and his men own, along with his wives and his kids, and he doesn't know if they're alive or dead. The text says that this former hero of his men now became their enemy, and they spoke of stoning him. He knew the promise. The promise was that he would be king of Israel. He had been anointed as such, but he saw the suffering ahead of him at the hands of his own people. So he was either going to trust and obey, or he was going to cut and run, because he could outrun any of them. Well, it says simply that he strengthened himself in the Lord is God. He strengthened himself in the Lord is God. He hit his knees. The text would say that he inquired of the Lord and he listened. He didn't just hear, he listened to his word. And the Lord saw him through that suffering and delivered on his promise. So now back to the Israelites. What should they have done? What should we have done if we were there? We should have hit our knees. We should have studied his word. We should have gone back to the promise he made to Abraham. We should have sat down with our family and said, Honey, children, look up. Do you see the pillar of cloud? That same God who brought us out of the land of Egypt is the same God who promised our forefathers that he would give us land. 
But we have to go through suffering in order to enter His rest. I'm going to go fight. And I'm going to trust that with each stroke of the sword, the Lord will guide my hand to complete that which He has already promised. I'm going to trust and obey. And your wife screams and says, you've never fought before. You don't know how to handle a sword. And we would have put it on, prayed as a family, and gone forward. Do you feel the reality of that? Because a day is coming when we are going to have to walk that same path. It may not be a sword, but it will be through the path of suffering to enter His rest. Now watch this. With all that said, look at the very next well-known verse, verse 12. What do we trust in? For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. The Word of God is a two-edged sword. It cuts to the quick and gives faith. Like at Pentecost with Peter preaching, it says, and they were cut to the heart at his preaching about that they had killed their Messiah Jesus, and they cried out, what shall we do? And he said, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. The Word of God cuts man's heart and gives faith. But it cuts two ways, doesn't it? It cuts two ways. Where else do we see the imagery of a two-edged sword in Scripture? Ephesians 6, we see the sword of the Spirit. In Revelation 19, we see a sword proceeding from the mouth of King Jesus as He comes for judgment. The Word of God cuts hearts and delivers faith and cuts for judgment. He brings this to bear on these first century believers. He says, hold fast. Hold fast to what the Word of God says. What does the Word of God say? Person and work of Jesus Christ. If you look back to the beginning of this pericope, it says, hold fast to our confession. Hold fast to what the Word of God says about Jesus. What does it mean to hold fast? Not intellectually. Really, really hold fast and believe. James 1.22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. You got five minutes to just be practical. You say, but I'm scared. Pastor, I believe everything you've said. I understand that, that we must persevere to the end. That suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. The genuine faith perseveres to eternal rest. But I'm scared. The author knows that and expects that. Look at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What has he just told us about Jesus as the great high priest? He's one who understands. He's one who is tempted in all things and yet without sin. He's one who has faced suffering and, and yet even death for us in a greater capacity than we ever have and the wrath of God and paid our penalty. Jesus understands. This is why Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you, what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
He comforts us, not only with what Jesus has done, but what he is doing now, interceding as a high priest who can come to the aid of those who need it. Saving faith has a a healthy fear. Saving faith holds fast. It trusts and obeys. Martin Luther said it well. He says, it's one thing to believe a ship can make it across a storm-tossed sea. And it's quite another to entrust oneself to the ship by stepping onto it for the voyage. That's true, isn't it? Can I share with you one more engraving of our first century Christian brothers and sisters? In the catacombs in Rome and in Italy, they would write things and it's where they would bury their dead. We're all familiar with the fish as a Christian symbol. You may even recognize the Greek word ichthus. What you may not know is that it's an acrostic. You see the first letter of each, uh, of each part of that Greek word means something. And what was carved in the place of death was this. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Ichthus. Let us hold fast to our confession. The Word of God. And those first century believers would draw a fish in Ichthus. What are they holding fast to in order to enter the rest? Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. I think that pretty much sums it up and gives a whole new meaning to rest in peace. Amen? So, Father, I pray that you would make us faithful. That you would cause us to hold fast to our confession to who Jesus Christ is, what he has done. That in the face of suffering and persecution, we would look forward to our eternal rest, to being in the presence of our God. And look forward to it. Suffer well through it because of the genuine faith that you have given to us and you have strengthened by your word. It is in the King of Kings' name that we pray. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Amen.